0: Welcome to Flip the Script podcast. So the world is going crazy. If you feel like the world is going crazy, it is because it has. All right, there's a lot going on. So we're gonna get right into it. We're gonna flip the script. All right. So there's a crisis going on in Lebanon. This is from LBC News. Uh, It says that more than four million people in Lebanon could face critical shortage of water or be cut off completely in the coming days. UNICEF has warned due to the severe fuel crisis. Lebanon, with its population of 6 million, is at a low point in a two-year financial meltdown with a lack of fuel, oil, and gasoline, meaning extensive blackouts and long lines in the few gas stations still operating. Vital facilities such as hospitals, health centers, have been without access to safe water due to electricity shortages, putting lives at risk. UNICEF executive director uh, has said in a statement. If 4 million people are forced to resort to unsafe, costly sources of water, public health, and hygiene will be compromised, Lebanon, an increase of waterborne disease in addition to the surge in COVID-19 cases, she said, urging the formation of a new government to tackle the crisis. So things are going crazy in uh, Lebanon. There's blackouts all the time. People are losing electricity. It's hard for them to get fuel. Uh, Yeah, so that's not really being reported here in the U.S. too much. All right, so next thing, let's flip the script. All right, so a bunch of former Gitmo detainees that have been released are back on the battlefield. Uh, This is from the New York Post titled Hundreds of Released Gitmo Detainees Back to Killing Americans. It says 20 years after 9 11 attacks, US intelligence documents reveal 229 rehabbed former Gitmo detainees have returned to terrorism and killing Americans. And an alarming 66% of them have not been recaptured and still remain at large. Meanwhile, President Biden is quietly freeing more of these terrorist suspects from Guantanamo Bay prison, all to fulfill his old boss's pledge to permanently close the facility in Cuba. Shortly after taking office, Biden reversed President Trump's executive order to keep Gitmo open and is lining up inmates for transfer out of the prison with the goal of emptying it and shuttering it. Even though the remaining prisoners have long been classified by military intelligence as the worst of the worst and too dangerous to be released. Last month, the president freed his first prisoner, accused terrorist Abdul Latif Nasir, leaving the number of remaining detainees at 39. Ten others have been cleared for release, including some of Osama bin Laden's bodyguards and 9 11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, safe house operator, according to Gitmo Parole Board documents. Still, other detainees have appealed to the Biden administration through their pro bono defense lawyers to ensure their release despite the risk of them returning to militant activities. Biden is clearing out the cells despite being fully briefed on his intelligence agencies that one of the three released detainees have gone back to fighting against America, and some have actually managed to kill more Americans. Based on trends identified during the past 17 years, we assess that some detainees currently in Gitmo will seek renegade in terrorist and insurgent activities after they are transferred, a recent U.S. intelligence report has warned. According to a December 20th, according to a December 2020 declassified report by the Office of National Intelligence, a total of 229 of the 729 detainees released from Gitmo have reengaged in terrorist activities, including conducting and planning attacks and recruiting and funding terrorists. All right, so this is not good. Uh, You know, we're releasing detainees and they're going back out on the battlefield to fight us. It's not like we didn't see that coming. Uh, What did you think was going to happen? Yeah. Um, I mean, I get it. You know, they have to have their day in court. They have to, you know, bring them to court, bring them to court, have them, you know, get sentenced. know, I don't understand what they're doing over there, but it is what it is. Right. All right. So ISIS has made a resurgence. Uh, This is from Fox News. New ISIS threat in Afghanistan prompted U.S. warning in Kabul. Defense officials. One official told Fox there are other terrorist groups about which they are also concerned. All right. So what do we think was going to happen? Yeah. The Afghanistan government falls, Taliban moves in, and then you have other terrorist groups coming in trying to take power as well. Let's continue. Let's flip the script. A new threat. From the Islamic State's branch in Afghanistan prompted a new warning for the U.S. Embassy in Kabul that urged Americans to not come to the besieged airport in Kabul, officials confirmed to Fox News on Saturday. Because of potential security threats outside the gates of Kabul airport, we are advising U.S. citizens to avoid traveling to the airport and to avoid gates at this time unless you receive individual instructions from the U.S. government representative to do so, the embassy warned on Saturday. The warning came amid continued chaos in Kabul airport, where thousands of Americans and Afghan allies have been trying to gain access to flights leaving the country, which has quickly fallen to the Taliban ahead of the planned U.S. withdrawal on August 31st. Officials have acknowledged that a small number of Americans and Afghans have been beaten or harassed by Taliban fighters as they tried to get to the airport. So far, 17,000 people have been evacuated since August 14th, 2,500 of whom are Americans. There are now approximately 5,800 troops in U.S. troops on the ground guarding the airport. Officials speaking to reporters on Saturday emphasized that the airport remains secure and the military has maintained gate security. Pentagon officials would not comment on the nature of the possible threat at a press conference on Saturday. Of course, why would they? The officials told Fox that it was a threat from ISIS that triggered the warning. The ISIS threat was the first reported by the Associated Press. There are other terrorist groups we are concerned about as well, one official told Fox. While the official declined to give details, the Pentagon has long assessed that hundreds of al-Qaeda fighters remain in Afghanistan, directly contradicts a claim by President Biden on Friday that al-Qaeda is gone from Afghanistan. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby later said in a news conference that al-Qaeda does, in fact, have a presence. So like I said before in my last podcast, al-Qaeda, ISIS, the same organization, they just changed the names. ISIS started wearing black uniforms. They got a flag. Uh, They're the same people. Um, The former leader of Al Qaeda, um, who was later captured, uh, killed by uh, U.S. troops a couple years ago under President Trump, with the famous dog. That the dog that captured him used to be part of Al Qaeda, and now is part of ISIS, or was a part of ISIS, and it's the same organization. There's no difference between the two. Uh, In a statement on Saturday, Kirby told Fox that we are mindful that the situation is dynamic and fluid and we are doing everything we can to conduct safe and orderly evacuation. The Biden administration is facing significant political pressure over the crisis, which caught the U.S. by surprise and has led to a mounting criticism of President Biden's handling of the situation. I don't know how this could catch the U.S. government by surprise Anybody would have told you that this was going to happen. Friday, press conference Biden sought to portray the situation in which the U.S. had regained control and was steadily evacuating Americans and certain Afghans, but warned that he couldn't promise what the result would be. I cannot promise that the final outcome will be or that it will be without risk of loss, but as commander in chief, I will mobilize every resource necessary. The Pentagon was asked on Saturday if Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was frustrated or reported having his advice not to withdraw troops ignored by President Biden. Uh, This is a quote, the Secretary is 100% focused on the mission at hand right now, which is a non-combatant evacuation operation, Kirby said. And he's comfortable that throughout the deliberation, his voice was heard, and that he had an opportunity to provide his best advice to counsel and the commander in chief, and to the national security team, as did other leaders here at the Pentagon. So that is a very generic statement answering questions in a non-answering question kind of way. As you see, typically uh, with bureaucrats and politicians, they do not actually answer questions. They just give you the runaround. All right, so since ISIS is making a resurgence, I told you in my last podcast I was going to read parts of Holly McKay's book, Only Cry for the Living. Uh, She was basically tracking and following ISIS throughout the whole uh, ISIS, Syria, Iraq, Wolfe, starting from 2014, and I believe she left there in 2018 or 19. I'm not sure exactly. Um, looks like it was 2018 is when her memoir has ended for the book. All right, so we're going to read from this. Everybody should go out and get this book, Only Cry for the Living. Um, Holly McKay is still in Afghanistan right now. Uh, she was there. When this whole thing started, she's reporting on the ground. Um, she's very good at what she does. Uh, she was on a couple podcasts. Uh, Jocko podcast it was really good. Um, she talks about her whole story of how she ended up getting into this, how, what her like. She was a ballerina before in Australia, and then she ended up getting into journalism and was doing like covering uh, celebrities for Fox News at one point, and then. She winds up in the Middle East following ISIS. So it's actually a pretty interesting story that she has. And um, she's really good at what she does. Check out her book. um, Follow her and see what she's reporting on. All right. All right. So we're going to read a section of her book. This is from November 2014. And it's titled The Faces of Evil. All right. So it says, some ISIS soldiers would tell you that the reasons they joined were simple, straightforward, moving into a web of basic survival, money, protection, food. Other times, the reasons to pledge allegiance to a terrorist group were complex, deep-seated, and sectarian, tribal, and historical grievances dating back centuries. So what is war? War is a composite of individual stories and reasons, one rarely the same as the other. Iraqi and Kurdish authorities had already apprehended hundreds of ISIS fighters and in those first few months and stuffed their prisons with the terrorist members including a soldier who had told me that he had killed as many as 70 people in the service of the radical jihadist army his reasons a cultivated web of both hatred and self-preservation omar a 25 year old isis fighter from the iraqi village of dor saladin admitted that during isis's first month in mosul He had killed scores of his countrymen and foreign contractors on its behalf. This is a quote from Omar. They came to our area and forced me to protect their lands, Omar said, flatly of his ISIS commanders, his thick monobrow remaining frighteningly still, a physical manifestation of his emotionless figure before me. After a while, they told me, when are you going to start protecting your own land? His eyes burning into mine. He went to describe the words of his superiors. They told me to do it or die and then they killed people in front of me. Omar was missing four fingers on his left hand from what he claimed was an industrial accident. A lie, chopping off hands and fingers was a punishment for stealing. The disability nearly got him killed by his ISIS handlers, he claimed until he proved that he could shoot right-handed. Overnight, Omar, purporting to protect his home turf to a prolific killer under his ISIS banner, by his count, He had racked up 70 executions in a matter of months. He mandated that he killed his victims with rifle shots and was chillingly candid about why he didn't. Because they were saying bad words about Aisha, one of Muhammad's wives known as the mother of believers, and burning a mosque. He went on. He insisted that he did not receive any type of reward from ISIS leaders for the large number he killed. I asked if he felt any remorse. The clock ticked for a few seconds on the wall, narrowly loud. I did not act on my own will, Omar responded solely, flinching as if he still embodied by some evil outside influence. We were seated in the tightly monitored facility, the Kurdish equivalent of the FBI, in a city not far from the Iranian frontier. Omar's deflection drew a sharp rebuke from the Kurdish guard inside the room, who barked at him with a scolding I could not understand. Meekly, he corrected himself, apologizing and insisting that he had defended blame only because he was uncomfortable around women. Omar was being held in an undisclosed, shyish prison on the outskirts of, can't say that name, after being convicted weeks earlier in the courts of law on terrorism charges. He was initially sentenced to death, but I was told the judge commuted his sentence to life in prison. I was surprised when the security guard offered him a tea along with the rest of us, which he nervously but politely accepted. An uncomfortable hush wafted over the room as we all took a few seconds to sip. I took in his impish face, his painfully skinny body, his anxious twitch, and the way his eyes constantly darted and dropped to the cold ground. Here was a face of evil, a man who had taken lives that were not his lives to take, and yet there remained an odd air of childish innocence about him. Omar was a brutal individual, but he was also a tragic statistic. Just one of the tens of thousands of young men to take up arms on behalf of the barbaric group. One of the tens of thousands who could have lived low-profile lives working and tending to a growing family. But instead, he became a statistic in following the path of human destruction and has sabotaged any prospect for a normal future. As his story unraveled, Omar said he joined ISIS to get away from his new bride. He had been in an arranged marriage and he did not know his wife until the day that they were married. After the wedding dancing and chorus of congratulations had ceased, he realized something was wrong with her. He said that she had something in her head. She looked normal on the outside, but she wasn't. He stuck out the strange nuptials for a few months, longer, in the hopes of fathering a child, but after multiple doctor visits, it was determined that his wife couldn't have babies. Something was wrong with her, Omar repeated. He believed that his only option was to leave for work one morning and never come home. He knew that in fleeing with no money to his name, as per Islamic law, he left his family responsible for paying his wife's family a fortune of down cost. Thus, Omar knew that he could not escape his wife and he could not find a safe haven in his family home. And so he fled to the abyss of Mosul just after a sudden takeover by ISIS. After weeks of killing, of blood staining his clothes, of living in fear that the terror group's leader could turn their guns on him for any misstep, Omar decided to run away once again. This time he deserted during a witching hour and surged into Kurdistan. He hoped that he could blend in with the displaced flow of people and perhaps find a job, but only days later, on October 8th, he was captured by the police, having been identified by Kurdish intelligence agents. Omar, along with hundreds of fellow ISIS soldiers and deserters, were being interrogated for intelligence that could help the Kurdish in its fight against the jihadist group. Evidence against individual former combatants is gathered and presented to a Kurdish judge who decides whether prisoners are held or released. Omar and many other ex-ISIS fighters convicted of mass murder or terrorism charges would likely spend the rest of their lives behind bars. A small percentage of ex-ISIS members determined not to have participated in fighting would serve lesser sentences and someday be released into the general population. Omar insisted that he was a victim of ISIS. They had given him no choice but to join and kill for them if he wanted to stay alive. Only he was full of contradictions. The more he talked, the more it was clear that Omar still regarded the so-called Caliphate with the kind of wistful infatuation, pointing out that living as if they were still in the 17th century was a noble and majestic concept. I asked him what he would do, hypothetically, if he saw me on the streets under the Caliphate's control. He said, I would call you to Islam, Omar conjectured, straightened up, and if you didn't come, I would leave you alone. He recited the sentence as if it were a script know exactly what the guards wanted to hear. Omar was one of the two former Islamic fighters who spoke to me that day. The other, a 19-year-old Kurdish teen, identified as Darwin, said that he was lured to join by the group's Facebook pages, which urged Muslims to join the fight in Syria. Darwin looked like he belonged in a Boy Scout uniform, sleeping in the woods rather than on a bloody battlefield. He claimed that he had spent just 20 days in the world's most infamous terrorist battery before being arrested two months earlier. He claimed not to have witnessed a single killing. Yet he harbored up no illusions about ISIS's barbarity. I realize that this is not about God, especially after I was captured, he said. I realize this isn't about God. It is about harming people. Also, the Kurdish people were nice, even with my situation. Again, lines of a script was somehow delivered a little more earnestly than his cohort. Darwin explained passionately that he felt regret about joining the group almost immediately. I called my family and they were not happy. It was shameful. I felt weak because they made me act and think a certain way. He answered when asked whether joining a terrorist organization made him feel powerful. I was asking for forgiveness even while there. Darwin, who faced terrorism charges and awaited his day in court, also vowed that he was learning more from fellow inmates about the barbarities committed by ISIS. He suggested Kurdish officials make anti-terrorist shows and programs to teach others that this is not the way to be. While his words reeked of indoctrinated lines used to please the guards, there were slivers of sincerity in the way he delivered his responses. He was just another tragic statistic. The facilities director, of security noted that most isis fighters were uneducated and easily led down the grisly path of violent jihad some regret their actions some do not the guard said to me earlier unchantly understand that most are young and have no information they are impressionable they listen to the second life paradise story 72 virgins rivers of wine and staying young forever that is all they know. Unlike the prisoners detained by ISIS, many of whom have been marched into the paths of silky desert dunes and have their heads lobbed off with a long sword or garbed in orange jumpsuits and forced to kneel before being blasted with bullets, the deserters from the terrorist army said that they were being treated relatively well by the Kurdish authorities. The two men were dressed comfortably and clean-shaven. Kurdish officials insisted that the men were being held under conditions of adherence to international law and monitored by the International Committee of the Red Cross. Both detainees confirmed that they were allowed contact with family members and seemed aware and up-to-date news involving ISIS. Both said they feared being captured by ISIS if they were released. Prison was perhaps keeping them alive. They articulated that they wanted to join the Peshmerga to take up arms against insurgency that had not so long enticed them in. Security officers, however, cautioned against believing the prisoners neither men could be trusted. Multiple authorities underscored, staring that ISIS was notorious for deploying spies into Kurdistan to gather information about everything from pending military operations to who was hiding in the ever-growing camps. Kurdish officials privately predicted there were little doubt of the two men and others like him will be back fighting for ISIS within days if they were ever released. We have been dealing with terrorist groups since the beginning, so this is not new for us, said one official, who had experience countering Saddam Hussein's repeated and destructive campaigns against the Kurds. We specialize in terrorists. I asked Omar once again what he would do hypothetically if he saw me in an ISIS-governed streets. I would call you to Islam, he conjectured. And if you didn't come, I would kill you. The script had finally whittled away. There was some momentary shuffling as the guards cuffed the prisoner and led him toward the exit. And Omar added calmly in his ever-quiet voice and bowed, pencil-thin legs, almost buckling beneath him. We count Americans like Jews. The guard eager to convey a word he knew in English gave the convicted terrorist a slight slap on the back and bellowed the wide grin. Let's go, baby. The strange phrase brought with it some comic relief to the sterile room. But deep down, I could not help but think Omar was feeble like an infant, hardly a vision of a hardened fighter. It wasn't until the wet, windling car ride back to April in the dead of that misty night that I remembered it was Thanksgiving in the United States. And flags were being burned to ash and buildings set ablaze in the Ferguson, Missouri, Black Lives Matter protests. And we're going to stop here. So I think that was a, a good refresher about what ISIS is and what their mind thinking is. Um, in the next coming podcast, I'll probably be reading more parts of that. Um, so remember, that was December of 2014. All right, so that's it for Flip the Script today. I uh, hope you're enjoying. I hope you hit the share button, share this with your friends. Um, and that's it. Flip the Script podcast out.